Go to the very end of Second Corinthians. Thanks to the band for uh, for that. Let's say that. Uh, good to have Brandon and Kate with us tonight. In from Nashville, uh, and um, yeah, good to have everybody here. All right, we're going to bring those lights up a little bit, and tonight we finish the long journey through Second Corinthians that we started, I think, in September, maybe, or August, or something. I know it was hot when we started, hot when we finished. Okay, um, so this letter is one that we've picked apart little bits at a time, sometimes in big chunks. Uh, we really just we're just pursuing what I what I sensed was just the Lord's leadership to go through this as a church and and let Him bring out the things He wanted to bring. Um, and so now we get to the the conclusion of the letter, uh, which really I mean we could spend another two months just on the conclusion, uh, but we won't. We're going to finish tonight, and uh, so just hang in there with me. So we're going to pick up Second Corinthians chapter thirteen. Starting in verse 11. It says, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Um. I didn't realize this when I first read, uh, was started studying on this, but the, uh, the last couple of verses, um, most really smart people who know Greek and have studied all these letters, they say that this is, is a summation of the entire letter, that Paul has wrapped up the thing and he goes back and, and, and these commands he's giving them are summarizing what he has, has just spent all this time laying out in, in more detail. And so I'm not going to try to recap all that, but I, hopefully you'll be able to, as we talk about some of these points, you'll, some certain nights will come back. Oh, I remember when we talked about that, and that sounds familiar and everything. But um, we're going to spend a good amount of time on verse 11. Uh, so, Nate, let's just throw that one up there, and we'll just leave it up there for a little while. Um, this is where, where the commands come, come from, and I want to look, especially at the, at the end, um, he says, you know, do these five things. Rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Now, I, there's certainly some like semantic issues in there or whatever. But that very easily could read as, uh, as an, an if-then. If you do these five things, then the, uh, the God of love and peace will be with you. Which implies that if you don't do those things then the God of love and peace will not be with you. And that's, that's not what, what the, how that reads. And so we need to really be careful that we're not looking at this as like a conditional set of commandments, you know, that it's not a magic spell uh, or, you know, if you, you know, turn the combination of these five things, then all of a sudden the God of love and peace will be with you. Um, it's not an if-then, it's a, it's a when-then. Like when you do these things, the God of love and peace is with you which does not necessarily mean that, that if you don't do those things, he's not with you. But this is more of a, of, of a guarantee that he's saying. Like when you live together in community in this way, the God of love and peace is with you. 
Okay, so let's make sure that we're understanding that that he's he's sharing with with them like a very important concept. That's not an if then; it's a when then, and those are very very different. Um, and so, uh, so these commands that he's giving them, uh, it's real easy for us to um, to focus too much on like like commands like this, because there's that part of all of us that wants like we want rules, we want to know exactly what. Uh, what we need to do and how we need to do it, and um, you know, if it's like, just don't really, don't tell me how that. Just tell, tell me how to, how to do this. You know, every summer um, that we've done these topical community groups, you know, we do one on on disciplines and stuff, and and I kind of always get the sense that like every one of us, is like, just tell me, tell me what to do to make my prayer life come alive. Tell me what to do to make scripture uh, and getting in the Word every day, you know, easier and everything, and and. When you're looking at rules like that, or you kind of want a set of instructions, um, we as a church greatly resist that kind of mindset. Of just give me, give me the six P's of prayer, and let me do the six P's of prayer, so I'll know how to pray. It's like, well, that's not, that's not really how it works. It might make a nice, neat sermon outline, but it's not always that easy because um, we know that that our tendency is going to be like, give me some external stuff to do. And we end up ignoring the heart issue. Because what we want to do is we want our hearts to be in a place where we want to pray. And so we understand that transformation is an inside-out kind of thing. So instead of going and fixing the externals, we try to work hard on the internals and trust that that internal uh, transformation through the renewing of our mind uh, will produce in us uh, prayer and produce in us a desire to be in the Word and produce in us a, a generosity and hospitality and all those kinds of things. Um, and so we, we tend to, to really resist any sort of like behavior modification. You know, Just do these things and don't do these things and everything will be okay. Because we end up just cleaning the outside of the car and not cleaning the inside. We're, we're not a car. The outside of our lives. Why did I say car? Hmm. Uh, we end up cleaning, like we're just taking care of the external stuff. So every, it looks like we... We are like you know completely like sold out or however you want to think of it. When in reality, on the inside, we're we're just no different. And so our general like general way of thinking is let's go inside out transformation, renewal of the mind, renewal of the mind. And so every day, every day, like we're hitting like like refresh on a website. Like every day, we're hitting that. We're letting God like refresh and restore us, refresh and restore us, believing that every day He's making us more and more like Him. But uh, within that whole process, okay, if that's, that's like our main deal is we're, we're inside out. Um, there's also this truth that we have to have right, right alongside of that is the fact that um, all throughout Scripture, God tells people to do things. And He doesn't say, okay, look, whenever you get around to feeling like it, won't you forgive each other? Like, no, 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 you forgive each other. He doesn't say, all right, you know, if, 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 when you get around to it and you start to pray, then pray like this. He says, no. When you pray, pray like this. He gives instruction. And so we have to, while we believe transformation is inside out, we have to also realize that, that God uses, like through His Spirit, through the Scripture, and through, through the life of the church as well, He uses certain actions as a part of that transformation process. So the way you learn to pray is by praying. 
The way you learn what your spiritual gifts are is by getting in there and serving. The way you learn to become generous is by being generous. I mean, it's, so we put those things into practice, and he uses, he uses those rhythms to also be a part of our transformation. And so we don't sit back and say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm, God's going to have to do everything as a, part of my, like, as a part of my renewal of my mind. He's going to do it all, and then eventually I'll get around to that changing my behavior. He's like, no, I'm going to use these disciplines and these practices at a, as a part of changing you. And so while we will resist behavior modification as far as like, here's a list of things you should do and a list of things you should not do, we'll never, we'll never do that. But we will look at Scripture and say, okay, if God is telling us to do something, if he's saying, live this way, put this into practice among you, then it must be for our benefit and for our renewal. And so whenever we see commandments in the Bible, we have to, okay, God's not going to be legalistic about it. He must be telling us to do this because it is a means to an end, and it's not the end in and of itself. Okay? So these commands are not the end. These commands are, are a means to the end, which is transformation into Christ-likeness. Okay? All right. Good deal. So, so sorry, we're just going to look at these five things individually real quick. Um, it says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Okay? So the first one is rejoice. And if you, if you want to think about it this way, um, rejoice and the God of love and peace will be with you. Okay? When you rejoice, the God of love and peace will be with you. All right? For all those things, we'll kind of take that approach. So he says, brothers, rejoice. He's not just talking to the guys. It's a very inclusive, it's not a gender-specific word. It just translates brothers. But he's talking to, you know, to all of them. He tells them to rejoice. Now, you know, if you've been here for, for a while, that um, the church in Corinth had been through a lot of drama. And they had had a lot of issues. And... Um, you know, Paul had been there, trained up the leaders and everything, spent like a year and a half with them. Then he leaves, uh, you know, he hands off the leadership to the elders. He leaves. These false teachers come in and start lying to the people, lying about Paul, lying about the gospel. And that, the, all these divisions and all these fractures started happening among the, the people. And certain people went with the false teachers and other people weren't sure what to do. And, and so Paul was, was in Ephesus, but he was writing letters, you know, back and forth. Uh, he sent actually four letters. This is the fourth one that he sent. Um, trying to pastor them from afar. These were brand new Christians in a really difficult city. Um, and he had this incredible connection to them. And so at this point, uh, they, they are on the upswing. Like um, the, the difficulty that Paul had dug into with them, um, he had gotten through to them. And they were ready to, ready to repent, ready to turn things around. And so they were definitely on the upswing. Uh, and so I, I think a part of when he tells them to rejoice is I think he's kind of telling them, like, hey, don't pout. Like, don't sit around and just wallow in where, where you've been and what you've been through. Um, yeah, it's, it's been difficult. Yes, it's, there have been, yes, there's been sin. Yes, there's been deceit. Yes, there's been divisions between you. But look, um, that's no, no reason for you to sit around and pout. I think he's telling them to, for them to focus their joy. I think that's what rejoice really is whenever it's a command. If he says rejoice, he's not just looking for a reaction. He's looking for a heart issue for them to, to focus their joy and focus where things are coming from. Basically, what he's telling them is instead of focusing on all the other stuff and all the drama and the, and the false teachers and all this kind of stuff, uh, instead of all that, seek his kingdom. Focus your joy on what is important in your life. And I was, was thinking... Uh, just in the last couple of days, just how, uh, 
how we focus our joy on things that just aren't that important so much of the time. We spend a lot of time getting really excited about things that have no eternal significance at all. And, and I'm not going to give any examples because I'll hurt somebody's feelings and have to retract it and everything. Uh, I've already done that enough this summer. Um, but but think, about, think about your life. Like think, think about not the things that bring you joy. Think about the focus of your joy. And if the focus of your joy is something that is like eternally significant or not. If it's a hobby, it could go either way, right? Because some of our hobbies actually are, are producing like good relational connections within us, which can lead to really great things for the kingdom. But some of our hobbies, we, haven't, we don't approach that in that way. We just like, we just like it. And sometimes it's like the, the focus of our joy is, is family, and family is great. But family is supposed to generate something in us. Family is not the end. Family is the, the means to the end. So within your family is the focus of your joy them because they make you feel a certain way or whatever? Or are you learning things about the Lord? In the Holy Matrimony group, I mean, not to give anything away if you're in it the second round, but that's one of the things that we talked about. One of the questions I asked them is, what have you learned about how Jesus feels about you through your marriage experience? And so we talked about that for a little while, and that's one of the, the kind of the landing points for us was that, see, with a, with a husband and a wife, if you're the copy, if you're a copy of the original, which would be Jesus and the church, and there's so much of an emphasis, and I bring it out in almost every wedding I do, that, that the way the couple that's standing there at the wedding ceremony, the way they love each other, it's supposed to be this picture, this, this living parable for everybody around them to see. And the people are supposed to look at that connection and that love and that commitment and that grace and all that stuff. And they're supposed to, to, whenever they see that, and they're like, what is so great about that couple? And the Lord is, is basically, he kind of steps in and be like, well, it's me. I'm what's so great about that couple. You're seeing my love on display. That that's the goal is for... Um, for that living parable to be something where, where God uses all of our all marriages to draw people to himself. To say, I love you so much more than this couple even loves each other. And that's a lot, you know. But the, sometimes I, like, I, I, I think I focus so much on the outreach side of it that maybe there isn't enough emphasis on the fact that that living parable is not only supposed to teach other people something, it's supposed to teach the couple something. Like you're supposed to learn, husbands and wives, you're supposed to learn from each other in your experience something about the way God feels about you. The living parable. And so the focus of your joy, if you find joy in your marriage, that's, you need to, that's, that's great. But that joy can't stop with just how it makes you feel. That joy has to go beyond that. And the resting point of that has to be Things about the Lord. So, so I think he's telling them, focus your joy. All the stuff you've been through, all the things going on, make sure that your joy is focused on the one who gives joy. Okay? Look at the second one. He tells them, aim for restoration, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Aim for restoration. Um, all the stuff that they had been through, it would be really, really easy for their aim to be something other than being restored. You know, it'd be easy for their aim to be, you know, being right. 
with all these like fracture points between them relationally that God's trying to restore, it'd be easy for them to aim for being right or to aim for uh, payback or to aim for finding a new set of friends or to aim for something that's just totally ridiculous. And, and Paul's telling them, you, you need to, like, the bullseye that you're looking at and the crosshairs you're setting it on, it needs to be, to be restored. For God to, to take you and all these fracture points and for him to, like, bring everything back together and restore it to where it's stronger than it was at the beginning. And it's connected to the one before it, because when you focus your joy, aiming for restoration is so much easier. Because when you focus your joy on the Lord, and you're focused on Him and what He's done, then you realize that aim for restoration basically means let us be restored horizontally among each other the way that the Lord has restored us to Him vertically. So you look, if you're focusing your joy, and you're, you're basically doing this like incredible, like you're just focusing on this vertical thing and who God is and what He has done. You're focused on that. And then you lay that across the community Say, okay, so we just need to, we need to be as a community a living parable of the restoration that God has provided for us between Him. Paul's saying, aim, aim for that. And if you don't have an aim, you need to have an aim. And so you, you bring that into our, our context, and we're not a church that's been through tons of drama. And we don't have to be a church that ever goes through tons of drama. But there is drama, maybe not at the corporate level, but you get down, get down into like groups of friends and individuals, and there are divisions among us. And that's what happens when we live in this world, and we, we have the battle between like the spirit and who we are and having access to that flesh nature, and we do have an enemy, and we live in this world. Now, the things that we go through, there's just, like Jesus said it, you're going to have problems. Okay, don't, don't live in this bubble, and think that you're not going to have issues, you're going to have problems. Some of that's going to come with having tension between each other. Okay, so let's say that you have tension with each other. Well, aim for restoration. You sit down, and you talk about things, and we communicate about things, and we prayerfully involve Jesus in conflict resolution, like he says in Matthew 18. We do all that stuff. But what's, what are you both aiming for? There's division between two of you. There's division between a group of people. What are you? What What is the aim? Okay. I was thinking about like like aiming like when you're you're aiming at something, um, it's usually something far away. And so don't expect restoration to just instantly happen. Restoration is a is a grace filled process that the Lord brings us through. But you got to start off with saying, okay, our goal is to be restored. Now, that, it, might take, it might take days, weeks, months. But that's what we're aiming for. And we're trusting Jesus to step us through that process. When you aim for restoration, the God of love and peace will be with you. When the God of love and peace is with you, restoration happens. So maybe that fits into life where you are today. Never sure if I should say tonight or today. I may flip-flop until I find one that works. Um, All right, the next one. Uh, Comfort one another. Comfort one another. He starts off this this letter, this fourth letter, 
It's talking about the God of all comfort. And it encourages them to comfort one another with the love that the God of all comfort has comforted them. So again, we're going back to what, what happens to you vertically being passed on horizontally. That God has comforted you, and then you pass that same comfort on to somebody else. But it's not, you're, you're not relaying comfort, you know. It's not something where it's like, God's going to comfort you, and then you're going to pass comfort to the next person. It's God comforts you, and then through you, he comforts that person too. So he's the comfort the whole time. Sometimes we just get to be like the conduit of comfort that comes to people. Now, the, the Greek here is, is interpreted different ways. And some, some don't look at this as comfort as much as they do. Uh, they call it um, receiving encouragement. Now, some folks are really, really um, great at offering comfort. And what's super frustrating, uh, from what I understand, to people who are good at offering comfort, is to try and comfort someone who is unwilling to receive it. It's like people who can't take a compliment. And so I was kind of reading different things, like, okay, well, is it comfort one another, or is it receive encouragement and comfort from each other? Which one is it? Which one is it? And I, I, well, I kind of think it's both. That we need to be constantly offering comfort and encouragement and, re- and being willing to receive that. That requires humility on both sides. When people start to, to really think about, okay, well, what should the church be doing? What should the church do? Do we need to go be the church, be the church? I was like, what does that, what does that mean? That probably means like a hundred different things in, in this room alone. I ought to say, there is no sermon tonight. We're going to go be the church. And the doors were to fly open and everybody was to walk out. These things, this part of what it means to be the church is to be a conduit of grace and mercy and forgiveness and truth and comfort and encouragement to one another. So we have to be in that place where we're, we're ready to offer it and we're also humble enough to receive it, no matter who it's coming from. And unfortunately, that's not something that exists to the degree that it probably needs to in the church today in the United States. And so if our desire is to be uh, an accurate picture of the bride of Christ that Jesus died for, that he um, laid down his life to sanctify us and make us holy, if that's what we're going for, um, he gives us really practical ways to do that. And one of those ways is just let's be for each other. Talked about last week how Paul was for him and he told him and he proved it over and over and over again. And sometimes I just kind of wonder, like I feel like we're for each other, but it's real easy to wonder that sometimes. Because you can be hanging out somewhere and there can be like not an encouraging word offered to each other. And so when you're in an environment where there's zero encouragement, what happens to you? Your walls go up. So you're like, I'm not going to let you know that I need encouraging because I do that and you offer a cheap shot at me. So uh, I'm going to put this wall up and you're not going to know what's going on with me except what I just let you know. So I'm going to maintain this 
this image. I'm going to maintain this status of how I'm doing. Um, and so no one, uh, like basically you're, you're like protecting yourself so that you don't get hurt. But if there is an environment where there's transparency and there's honesty, and someone says, yeah, I've really been like wrestling with this, and somebody responds to that with something encouraging or with more questions or with some follow-up, then that connects, connects people. Next thing you know, the, like, the church is being the church for one another. I was somewhere a um, week before last, and uh, we were kind of just like hanging out, just four or five of us, and kind of got ready to go. And, and one among us was like, like, hey, hey, I need you to ask y'all to pray for me about something. Start sharing. We ask some questions. We stop. We, we pray. We go home. I'm driving home, and I'm like, why? Why was what just happened? Why is that so rare for me? You know, why is that a, why is that a, a not a weird experience in a bad way? But why is that not typical for me for that to happen? And that person didn't have to say, didn't have to let us in, didn't have to ask for prayer, and we didn't have to stop and actually pray. We can be like, yeah, be praying for you or whatever. But for some reason, it just kind of rolled the way it was supposed to, and it was, just, I mean, I don't know, it was, it was great. And that's not boasting about anybody that was there or whatever, and that's why I didn't say any names except mine. And, uh, I couldn't be like, I read the story on the internet, you know, like it happened to me, so I'm going to tell you that much. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I walked away and I was just like, that should be the norm, you know. It should be weird when, when that doesn't happen. And not that set of circumstances in particular, but it should just be weird to walk away from a time and be like, man, nobody was really honest about how they're doing, you know. Everybody was kind of putting on a front. And so I think this is one of those, um, those disciplines, those like community, like, those, like do this, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Do this, and the renewal of the mind will come from that. Because as I drove home, my mind was being renewed because I was asking those questions about why didn't this happen more often. He's like, do this. Humble yourself. All right? when, when our community groups start back up in the fall, wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be just tremendous if we had more emotional breakdowns in our community groups? I mean, if we got into the Word and someone was like, really just like, look, let me tell you, and they just unloaded. And then when they did that, everybody in the group like knew exactly what to do. Wouldn't it be great if we celebrated more together? Wouldn't it be great if there's just more of that transparency? And here's what, what has to happen. Let's just be super honest. Everybody has walls up. Because we don't want to be hurt. And we don't want to hurt somebody else. And so we're all just living very, very safe. Everything's being very safe all the time or whatever. And what it takes, I used this, this analogy like a couple of years ago. Um, everybody familiar with the hokey pokey? No? All right. Google it tonight. Uh, we used to go to the skating rink, uh, Leo's Rollerland, and uh, they would always have the same thing. They had to have couple skate. Uh, they would have uh, they would have races. Remember that? Not like black white races, like like races, like you like race around like that. 
And then, I can't blame jet lag anymore. For a while, I was getting away with a lot of stuff. I'm sorry, I got jet lag. <laughs> uh, now, but, but then they would do the hokey pokey. So everybody would get in a big circle, you know, and you did do the hokey pokey on skates, which is always like a physical challenge, you know. And so, uh, but um, the way that every time I went, we wouldn't just get in a big circle. Like everybody would have to like hold hands and get in a big circle to like make sure that we weren't all over the rink or whatever. So you make the circle kind of holding hands and you do the hokey pokey. And what I thought about uh, a couple of years ago was that, um, I don't know why the hokey pokey, it doesn't even make sense that I even brought that in. Uh, but if everybody's in a circle, okay, if we're, like, if we're in this big circle and um, we're trying to get to the point where um, comfort one another is common among us, okay, um, it requires every one of us around the circle like, agreeing and saying, okay, I, I want to go in that direction. Um, but instead of saying, let's, let's all just, like, skate to the middle and comfort one another, it's like we're all saying, okay, let's all take one step in. All right, on the count of three, everybody takes one step in. And, and we're all a little closer to that. We're like, okay, that's, this, isn't, this is pretty cool. You know, you want to take another step? Everybody's like, okay, okay, okay. And we take another step in. We take another step in. And so we're aiming for restoration, but we're also aiming for this too. We're aiming for that transparency and that comfort to be shared among each other. And it's not going to be this like super fast process. And it doesn't work if eight people are skating to the center and everybody else is like, whoa, I'm not doing that. It takes everybody taking a collective step in. Another collective step in. In. That's why we do covenant membership. And that's why we do some of the things we do. That's why we do community groups. And that's why we know that we are not the church that we want to be. But we're, but we're moving what we believe together in that same direction, one step at a time, but it takes everybody being on board. When we do that, the God of love and peace is with us. Look at the next one. Um, agree with one another. All right? This is not saying everybody has to be the same. This is saying being, be of one heart and one mind. Okay? Be unified as, as a family of faith. So we know that we're not a bunch of clones, and we know we're not all the same. We all have different personalities, different spiritual gifts, different uh, backgrounds and abilities. and all, We're all different. It's not saying you all have to be the same, but it is saying you have to agree about some things. You have to be in agreement. This church in Corinth, they had not been in, in agreement about some things that were fundamentally like messing them up. So you've got to be on the same page about some stuff. So get on board. Agree with one another. When you find those disagreements, you need to talk about it. You need to pray through it. You need to figure out what Scripture says about it and then be unified there. And that's the thing about, like, like I said earlier, we're, we're constantly just like hitting refresh. We're always coming back to it. And that's, that's why we always look at God's Word. Because the renewal of our mind is syncing us up with the truth that He has revealed to us here. And not that we deify this. We don't worship this. But the Spirit of God says, I'm going I'm to use this text to put you all on the same page about some things. So there's got to be this oneness of heart and mind. And so again, I talk about, go back to our membership, and over our 30 days of prayer this January, we prayed through our membership covenant. We said, this is how we've agreed to live together. Based on the, on the scriptures, this is how we have agreed that, to, you know, to live life together. So there's going to be a unity there. And when, there, when things happen that, that, dis, that 
cause dissonance in there, we're going to address those things and we're going to go for it. And that is really similar to the next one. It says live in peace. Um, live in peace is something that um, sounds, like, sounds like the way a lot of churches are. Um, we live in peace. Typically means like we just don't fight that much, which usually means people just kind of appease everybody and kind of go on ahead. But see, community is messy, and it's difficult sometimes. And there's a lot of joy in it, but there's a lot of strife in there too. Because as we're all being sanctified, like different things happen, and you're going along, and next thing you know, you're like one of your super close friends is like revealing something about. about their past or their present or something they've been wrestling with and they've been totally faking you out and you have to figure out what to do. And there are just times when it's just difficult. It would be so much easier to just go through life and appease everybody and act like you're totally fine. But that's not what God's called us to. God's called us to be real and honest with each other. So living in peace seems like it's really difficult when you think about it because it's like, okay, if if we're supposed to live in peace, then... Me being transparent in my community group or with my group of friends and saying like, hey, this has been going on. I've been hiding it from y'all. Wouldn't that wreck the peace? Wouldn't that cause turmoil instead of peace? And I would say no. Um, I was listening to Tim Keller, who if you're looking for a podcast, don't waste your time. Anybody else? Go to the Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast in New York City and just start listening. Um, this guy, this guy is, he's, he gets it. And uh, I was listening to this, he wasn't preaching on peace, but he got on this tangent about shalom uh, and how shalom is not what we always think that it is. And he described it, and I'm going to certainly butcher it, but uh, he talked about how like, all, the, all the entities um, that exist were, were made to exist like a fabric, to all work together like a fabric. You know, and he, he said, if I take, a, take a, a spool of thread and start just cutting off pieces and pile them up right there, that doesn't make a fabric. They're all laying on top of each other and stuff, but they're not, they don't make a fabric. What makes a fabric is when, like, one piece of thread is, is interwoven over and under and around and through and all this kind of stuff. And so you get all these individual threads and you weave them all together and, and everything is, he kept using the word interdependent. I really like that. So that's what makes a, a fabric, is that everything is interdependent on, on, on everything else. And uh, he said, so basically, like, that, that, is, that is shalom. That is, like, everything being interdependent. So you have, you have people, you have um, everything about us and everything about God, let's say, everything interwoven together. When everything is fitting the way it's supposed to, you have this fabric that is shalom, where, where we live. He said, but there are times when, when that uh, begins to, to like rip apart. And that's where you have chaos. And that's where you have injustice. That's where you have pain. So his, when he talks about social justice, one of the things he talks about is we go to the places in society where the fabric is coming apart, and we go and we try and mend that. We try and, and take the, the people and, and the things of God and try to weave them back together the way they were designed to be there and to try to restore that shalom. So he talks about like physically how when, when your body is completely working the way it's supposed to, you have physical shalom. And then if you, uh, you go to the doctor and he says you have cancer, what's happening is your, your body is not working the way it's supposed to. And so the, 
the physical shalom that was there becomes unraveled. It talks about emotional, like psychological shalom. When, when your, your conscience and your emotions and, and, and your, like your feelings and all that kind of stuff, when everything is all, like working the way it's supposed to, you have, uh, you have that inner shalom. You have that psychological shalom. But then when, you, when your feelings want something, when you're emotionally you want something, but your conscience knows it's wrong, and they're opposing each other, that psychological shalom becomes unraveled with that. And maybe it shows up like guilt or fear or whatever. So you go to that part where it's unraveled, and you figure out, okay, how, how do we realign these things to where it all makes sense? And so if you think about, think about it in that way, that it's, it's the things about us and the things about God like interdependent on each other, okay? That being shalom. Us individually and us corporately, okay? Um, it says live in peace. If you're being fake, our community shalom is becoming unraveled because that's not how God put things together. So you confessing sin, let, let, let's, let's, go, let's, let's say you confess sin to three of your friends, Okay? What, and let's say you've been hiding it. Okay, that'll be our example. You've been hiding some kind of sin from three of your friends and you confess it to them. What had been unraveled, no peace, is, is now being put back together in the form of shalom by you being honest. Our flesh tends to think that now I'm going to rip the fabric, but actually you're putting the fabric back together. So living in peace is about us being consistent with who God is. It's about righteousness it's about us being consistent with the holiness that Jesus died for, for us to, to be and to live in. So if we want to live in peace, we have to aim for restoration. We have to comfort one another. We have to agree with one another. We have to rejoice and focus, focus our joy. We have to do all those things. Because that is where, that's, that's shalom. That's shalom for you as an individual, where the, all the things about you and all the things about God are perfectly interwoven just like He wants. And that's the shalom of community, when all the things about God and all the things about us are just weaving together just like they're supposed to. When we do those things, the God of peace and love with us. And then He says, uh, greet each other, Greet one another with a holy kiss. That is a custom that was reserved for like close family members. They still do that today, and people from New Orleans. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't like, if you were like in Jerusalem and you were buying something from a merchant, you wouldn't go up to him, ask him a question, and like kiss him first. That's reserved. If you saw two people kiss, you know, they, must be, they must be family. Because that's how family, that's how they, that was a sign to each other that you are, my, you are my brother, I am your brother, sister, whatever. And what happened, as the church was born at Pentecost and they got to scatter everywhere, they began to realize that our, our race doesn't divide us and our language doesn't divide us and our customs don't divide us and our... Geographic location doesn't divide us, and nothing divided us, divides us. Everything unifies us in Christ. And so no matter where you're from or what you speak or what you look like, whatever, every one of us are spiritual siblings. And so they began to 
to show that custom to each other. That holy kiss would be exchanged. Because they began to see each other as not... uh, uh, Well, they began to see each other as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so you'd see, they would see each other out in public and they would do the kiss, on the kiss on each cheek or whatever. And one, you knew that they were believers, but you also knew, wow, they, they really think each other are family. And that's why he says in the next verse, all the saints greet you. All the saints in all these other churches where I've been, they send that greeting to you. They can't show up. They can't offer you that, that brotherly, sisterly kiss to acknowledge that we see you as family, but, but they send it. They send that sentiment. And when you see each other as family, say, man, we we want the fabric to be completely in place. Keller says this, he says, says, the more interwoven the fabric is, the stronger it is, the more warm it is, the more it functions, the more it it serves its purpose. And that's what we want, that's what we want. That's where Paul's pushing them. So people always want to know, what's the, what should we do as the church? What, should, what do we need to be doing? We need to be doing, doing, doing. These things are some of the things we need to be doing. And that is how he transforms us. But look how he closes us. I'm about to shut up. I know I'd say that every week. If the Bible wasn't so rich, these short, short sermons, I'm sorry. Um, it says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Um, he closes by basically speaking the power of the Trinity over this church. When he talks about the grace of Jesus, he's not talking about just grace. He's talking about the grace that's demonstrated in like the full scope of redemption. So he's saying everything about redemption and how gracious that was of Jesus be with you. But the backdrop of all that and the motivation of all that is the love of, of God. And the cross is, the dem- is a demonstration of love. It's in the, the grace of Jesus and the cross, but the love of, of God, the Father. And then the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the connection of, that connects everybody, that empowers everything, that applies the, that grace and that love, be with all of you. Because... There's no way we're going to carry out those commands or any command apart from like the Trinitarian God making it happen among us. That's the thing. You, we can't be like, we're the Ring Community Church and we're going to do these things whatever. It does, it's not going to work. We're going to work really hard, blah, blah, blah. It's just, we need, the Trinit- we need the Trinity at work among us all the time to get us there. Let's pray. Father, I'm... Um, Thank you so much for just for this letter and our journey through it and all the things you brought out. And Paul's heart was to build the church. I mean, he wanted to, like the church to grow and be strong and to to walk in that holiness that that is provided through what Jesus did. Um, that's what he wanted, to build and to grow. And that through the life of the church, that more and more people would realize just how gracious and just how loving God is. 
And that's our desire. That's what going through this letter is hopefully generated in us and renewed in us is an understanding that walking in uh, mercy and grace might be messy at times, but it's a means to end that is your glory and your fame and people knowing the truth about you. So I pray that we would find ourselves in this as a church, that as individually, just as individuals that we would look and we would really examine where our joy is and what we're aiming for and all the things that we talked about tonight. But that through, through all of this, you would produce in us the kind of lives that people, people say, I want to be a part of that family. Like they treat each other like family. And while there's plenty of bad examples of family out there, I pray that we as a church would, would be one that just really just shines forth one of, of grace and love and people would desire to be a part of not necessarily our church family, but your universal church, wherever that brings them. That they would know you and love you. And so I just pray that as we sing tonight, that these, that these would be prayers that we voice to you. So we love you so much, and I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.